Coming up on Let's Clear the Air. Any company that's just um, sitting on its core business has a runway, but I'm really excited about companies that are also diversifying into a decarbonizing energy future because it helps capture the imagination of the public. Welcome to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast. Conversations focused on how some of the world's top energy leaders are innovating to deliver clean, affordable, and reliable energy for the future. Your hosts are energy and climate expert, Dr. Andrew Parker, and midstream industry veteran, Adam Murray. Now, here are Andrew and Adam. Welcome back to the Let's Clear the Air Podcast. Andrew Parker along here with Adam Murray. Uh, today, we've got a great guest lined up in Tisha Schuler. And if you haven't heard of Tisha, Tisha uh, helps oil and gas companies navigate some of the real challenging topics of our day in energy. Uh, they work with folks on decarbonization. Uh, they work with uh, companies on ESG planning. They're working on environmental social governance issues. So we're going to have a great conversation with Tisha here today. Tisha has spent much of her professional career working with the industry to transition into the energy future. She's the founder of Adamantine Energy and the author of three books, Accidentally Adamant, The Game Changers Playbook, and Real Decarbonization. She also hosts a popular podcast called Energy Thinks. Tisha, thank you very much, and we're looking forward to this conversation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so we're going to start with the icebreaker, Tish, and it's totally not controversial. Um, and I think uh, everyone probably has has a strong opinion about this. But toilet paper over or under? This was uh, oh. this was kind of your idea, oh. and it's funny because I don't actually have strong opinions. Like I call me crazy, <laughs> but like I literally don't care. But a lot of people do. Okay, anyone who doesn't care about toilet paper under or over has never had a cat. <laughs> or a crazy puppy. Because if you do the toilet paper over, the cat will unwind the whole roll. And some puppies will too. But I'm the only one in my whole company of 12 people who thinks that. But I feel really unclear about whether that's a good thing or not. I, I, gotta say, I agree land. with Kale McCarr. <laughs> gotta go over. Gotta go over. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible to to get to talk to you today, Tisha, and and there's so many places that we could start, and and so many places that we can take this conversation. But I think maybe for for the listeners' sake, the the trying to stay in chronological order, maybe the easiest place to start is just, um, you know, how did you get into the industry, and um, a little bit about your background, and and what led you to. Uh, start the company that you're part of today. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I won't tell the whole history because that could go on a bit long. But I, when I left the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, um, I really loved my five years running COGA. Um, and my my objective there was to put the best foot forward for the industry, um, you know, in the state, 
um, but also to bring the best out of the industry. Um, and, and I represented 40,000 individuals and their families. And I took that really, really seriously. So when I left, I thought now, now I'm not burdened. It was an honor and a privilege, but also it was a burden. Like my job is to, to protect the livelihood of 40,000 families. What would I do with the oil and gas industry without that component of my job? And I thought, well, then my whole job becomes to bring up the best in the industry. And that's why I started Adamantine Energy because um, it, it's a really tough world. We're going to talk about it, you know, this whole time for the oil and gas industry. They're really caught between a world that both you know, wants them to, to immediately stop producing oil and gas and produce more, better, faster, cheaper, you know, right now. And I wanted, I have a very trusted role with the oil and gas industry. And I thought, can I set up a whole business designed to bring out the best of the industry? Tell them things they need to hear, but don't necessarily want to hear, but with like a pragmatic grounding, like I understand how hard this work is. Um, and can I help create solutions? And that's what we do at Adam and team. We work almost exclusively with the, with the oil and gas industry, the whole um, uh, up and down the value chain. And, um, and that's what we get to do. And it is the greatest honor of my life. Like we're all, we all hope we get to do the thing we're born to do. Like I'm doing that. And so what, you know, what that's a joy. Awesome. That's awesome. I love hearing people that are happy doing what they're doing. I mean, uh, but you brought up a really good point, which your job is hard, right? So <clears throat> the industry is pretty polarizing. Um, it has a lot of challenges there and so when, as I was reading into your consultancy and doing more things like that, like, how are you helping organizations overcome those challenges as far as produce more, better, you know, lower emissions, but also fend off the threat of going away? Yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot we do in that space. But the, the number one thing, I think, is to understand and we work with this idea that two opposing ideas can be true at the same time. And that, yeah. and, and we work with, with that. And there can be two mindsets out in the world that are all good people and they see the world totally differently. So for example, um, there's a, a whole bunch of us who work in the oil and gas industry who believe that energy is the lifeblood of our lives. And it's the, you know, it's the grounding for everything, for prosperity, for well-being, even for effective environmental policy. I would argue even for effective climate action. And then there's other people who believe that addressing climate is our fundamental moral obligation. And that the only thing we should be doing is figuring out how to get off fossil fuels. Both of these mindsets have components of truth and, and everyone wakes up thinking they're on the side of right. So the way we wanna engage with companies is first of all, to understand that these opposing mindsets can both coexist. Um, and that what our job now is to navigate those effectively. And that takes it out of this land of polarization um, and into a land of like, how do we work with this? How do we be effective? How do we be persuasive? How do we make meaningful leadership contributions with people who don't want us at the table? And so all the work we do is around that. And it's a lot of individuals acknowledging that they're not gonna participate in this polarization anymore. And ultimately, and this will be a theme probably as we talk today, so much of what we face is like the media is not fair or universities aren't fair or something's not fair or not, you know, or incorrect, or they don't have facts on their side. We say, yeah, that might be true. And how are we going to navigate this effectively? Um, and how are we going to lead? Um, and, and how this is the industry best positioned to lead and solve the world's greatest problems. How are we going to do that? And to do that, we have to put some of this 
polarization aside. We have to put that's not fair aside. They're wrong aside and just ask like, what, what's the hand we're dealt and how are we going to be really effective leaders and really effective stewards of our brilliance, our millions of dollars, our wonderful people? How are we going to put that to work? Can, can I ask a follow-up question to that, right? So, you know, around the topic of polarization, I've, I've heard people say like, there is no, there's no logical argument that can overcome an emotional, like, right? Like when, and it's like the climate debate has strongly become emotional. Religious. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so how do you, like, how do you, what are the strategies or like, how are you coaching companies to get around that hurdle? Because at least in, in the conversations I try to have, that is the trickiest thing to get around is like getting around the emotional component of most of these discussions. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting, right? We're an industry full of scientists and engineers. And all we want to do is like explain the facts and have people understand them. And yet science tells us, and we love science, um, that people, that individuals are subject to their biases and mm -hmm. confirmation bias is the easiest to understand because we all play, at, play it out every day. Based on our identity, we take in information that aligns with how we see the world. And that's how we pick the news sources, the podcasts, um, uh, what we read, which studies we think are valid, who we think is corrupt and who we think isn't corrupt. And we do, and science tells us this. So, so now that we know that, then we could ask ourselves, how do I engage with people who have confirmation bias, which is all of us, even though none of us believe we do. Science tells us that too. Um, and the way we do it is by establishing rapport and trust. So as a practical matter, how do I advise an executive or even an employee to engage with a policymaker or someone at Thanksgiving dinner who just wildly disagrees with them or even thinks they're evil? It's all about being true to who you are um, and offering your perspective, but not trying to change their mind. Nobody likes to have someone try to change their mind. Do you like yeah. to have someone try to change your mind? And so the way that I would engage, for example, in my work, and this happens, I live in Boulder, Colorado. So like everywhere I go, people hate what I do. And for a long time, wherever I went, people just disliked, strongly disliked me. I'd like to think because they didn't actually know me. But how do I engage? I say, this is what I do. I am so proud of what I work. So I'm bringing up my emotional, my own emotional identity. I am so proud of what I do. And here's why. And they might say, oh, but that's wrong. How do you live with yourself? And I will say, hey, that's not how I see the world. Are you interested in another perspective? And often they're not. And if they're not, I mean, no one will say they're not, but you can tell they're not. So you can yeah. move on and talk about the weather. But if, you, if you're working with a policymaker or someone charged with governance, eventually they actually need partners. They need thought partners and they need to address the pragmatic realities of our energy system. And what I find is that if you focus on rapport and you focus on understanding people and becoming students of who they are and why they think the way they do, you create the space for these different kinds of conversations. And it's interesting, but different kinds of conversations makes the space for different kinds of policies and different kinds of outcomes. So you mentioned you're up in Boulder, Colorado. I believe Andrew's also sitting in Colorado. I'm wearing my Colorado Rockies hat, even though I'm sitting in uh, Dallas, Texas. But uh, so you were uh, the president of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Um, 
you know, and, and, and knowing Colorado, like I kind of do, it's seen a lot of change over the last few years, um, primarily through regulation consolidation. We just heard about a few deals, but you know, what were some of your biggest challenges in that role? I mean, was it really kind of the public, like you just told that story or regulatory or other kind of stuff? What was that all yeah. about? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the, the single hardest thing, and this is why I feel like I can speak with authority about transcending polarization, was that um, environmental activists targeted my family and my children. And so um, they posted pictures of my kids, our home address, my kids' school address, um, and told active, other activists to repay us for our crimes against humanity. And the only reason I mentioned this is because I want to make clear, like, I get how personal this stuff can feel. Yeah. And there's a real opportunity for us to say, to leave, to leave that at the door, because that, if I had stayed there, if I, I mean, I probably could have written like some bestseller expose book and like been just part of the polarization machine and like just stayed in that world. Yeah. Um, but what I've really found from that experience, one, a whole bunch of people rallied around our family and my work, um, including a lot of people who didn't, um, who, who didn't like the oil and gas industry mm -hmm. because I just kept showing up again and again, like I'm a mom, I'm a geologist, I love the oil and gas industry. I believe we are a source of solutions. Um, and I kept kept going in that vein. And that did inspire my first book, which told the story of, of, you know, how does an environmentalist from Boulder end up as the head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association? But then this work that I do today, which is all about um, transcending differences. So there's a lot of things that were very challenging about working at COGA. But, um, you know, in those first years, we lost almost all of our friends. Like we were complete outcasts. And then we were, tar you know, our, we were targeted such that my kids had to have a full-time sheriff at school with them. Like, that's pretty tough. Um, and, and, uh, and, and everything else is kind of like irrelevant in that context. And so after that, right. it sort of seems like this work, like we can, we can do this. We, we can address these challenges. Well, first off, sorry that happened. I'm glad you guys made it through it unscathed, but it had to be somewhat of a transformative situation so that's unfortunate but yeah i will say my children are like so rapidly pro oil and gas <laughs> it is like a funny outcome you know of experiences like that um that they they actually um one of them went to boulder high with his i'm a fracker water bottle like every day i was like son did you really want to go that far and he's like my mama's the president of oil and gas <laughs> and, and how was how was that received <laughs> you know he just pulled it off so i think again if you just get really clear about who you are he's like i'm not going to change anyone's mind i'm just not going to apologize yeah well you talked about your kids and taking their water bottles their fracker water bottles to school so for their with their future in mind where where is the energy industry in Colorado headed? Mm -hmm. I think um, I'm really, really um, cautiously optimistic about the future of oil and gas in Colorado. The consolidation, we, you know, we, I think we, it was highly anticipated. It's happening. Yeah. 
The operators in place are best in class, and Colorado has the opportunity to produce some of the best molecules in the world, and best by almost any measure. Like as long as you acknowledge that we're going to need oil and gas for decades and decades to come, and then you then you decide, well, we should produce them with this, you know, the smallest carbon footprint, like the yeah. most humane, um, empowered uh, people, um, in good, you know, in good places um, that are also empowering and 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 literally. Um, funding the energy transition, then Colorado is a wonderful place to be. Oxy is, you know, just building these cool low carbon ventures. Chevron, which just bought PDC, just has world-class um, decarbonization um, portfolio from renewable fuels to hydrogen to CCS. Like this is, these are really exciting times. Colorado, if led wonderfully, if led wonderfully, Colorado could set itself up as a traditional energy hub that leads in the energy transition. And we're going to have to produce a bunch of oil and gas to do that well to fund the transition projects. So I am optimistic, but I'm optimistic about everything. So you should definitely take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> Cautiously um, optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Colorado is really well positioned. Um, and also in, in a world where red states are building most of the, of, the decar of the energy transition stuff because you can build stuff in red states, blue states are going to have to figure out how to build stuff. So my hope is that Colorado is going to wind itself up to do that. I'm going to put you on the spot here just because you. I don't want to get too heavily into the Colorado oil and gas uh, play, but two things. You, you mentioned the PDC acquisition by Chevron um, and also something that just happened is that COGCC is now the Energy and Carbon Management um, Commission. And I'm just curious, you know, put you on the spot. Is all of the MA activity good for Colorado, right? I mean, like if you think about it now, you're like, okay, hang on a second. It's Civitas, it's Oxy, it's Chevron. Mm -hmm. And then there's some small guys left, Karis out on the Western Slope. But like, I mean, it's like compared to what it was 10 years ago, far less diverse. Um, is that, it, it, are all those changes you think going to be a net positive? or net negative or neutral for the industry in the state and, and ultimately producing clean molecules of, of oil and gas? Yeah, I, I'm agnostic about whether mo you know, more companies are better or fewer companies are better. What I am um, passionate about is good companies, like company leading. I think you have to be a world-class oil and gas producer to produce in Colorado successfully. Um, you know, over any amount of time. And I think that you should have to be, you know, frankly, I mean, you should have to be everywhere in America. Um, and so I am, and I, you know, I mentioned a few things, but I really like that these are world-class companies, you know, um, that have these low carbon ventures as well, because that's a huge emphasis from my perspective. I think any company that's just um, sitting on its core business has a runway, but I'm really excited about companies that are also diversifying into a decarbonizing energy future because it helps capture the imagination of the public. And I think that's important. I think that demonstrating that companies are part of the present and the future simultaneously is really is really important. Now, that doesn't mean I think that that um, pure play, you know, oil companies don't have decades. I actually do think they do. I'm quite bullish on the future demand of both oil and gas. 
Um, but they, but it's much harder to capture the imagination of skeptical, a skeptical public doing your old business model, the old way. It, it just, it's just not as, it, it doesn't help transcend the polarization in the way that a lot of these new ventures really does. Hmm. Yep. Okay. So, um, back to the regularly scheduled programming, I wanted to, <laughs> to get, uh, a little bit into, you know, talking about polarization, um, adamantine energy, your company dives a lot into the topics, right? You help companies work through some of the real uncomfortable topics and the polarizing topics of the day, right? Environmental justice, ESG, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really curious what you're seeing with your customers' attitudes towards ESG. And if you, I guess, spend too much time in the, the LinkedIn echo chamber, you start to convince yourself that ESG is a bit of a cuss word these days in oil and gas. And a lot of companies are trying to get away from that and they're going to sustainability or other words. Mm -hmm. So just real curious what the attitudes you're seeing uh, from your customers with respect to ESG in general, just an overall perspective. Yeah. So the you're narrating something really important, which is um, uh, what maybe we could generically call like the society journey. So so some some amount of time ago there was corporate responsibility, then there was sustainability, then there was ESG, and um, what we see happening is sustainability is coming back because ESG has gotten so polarized. Now, I think the important thing to understand about that is if you think of sustainability as a big umbrella and you put under it all the initiatives that the companies are doing that have to do with uh, climate, with environmental footprint, with diversity, equity, inclusion, with community engagement, if you just put all that stuff under the sustainability umbrella, then the opportunity we have today is to look at the backlash against ESG and say, what is good in that backlash? What is useful in that backlash? Um, and, and there's things that are useful and things that aren't useful. So what I think is useful is that there was a lot of BS in ESG. Like there was a lot of virtue signaling. There was a lot of groups like ratings agencies just like putting out crap that's actually counterproductive. Yes. It's confusing as a company that like helps companies with their sustainability, you know, ESG journey. Like you spend half your time just trying to like get out of like what's expected of you, what's useful. Um, and so let's just say that like there is a, a certain amount of critique of ESG that is completely fair. And there's a backlash happening that we'll call the backlash against woke capitalism or back, you know, I think I just heard the term woke lash. Like there's also probably legitimate critiques in, mm -hmm. in woke lashness, right? Like of like companies going too far. Does, does your CEO really have to have an opinion about every single thing that's not material to the business, et cetera. And there's like some backlash. that's just actually, I would say the equivalent of wokeness, like the anti-woke looks an awful lot like woke. Like it's, it's, you know, it's just like a lot of bluster. It's a lot of teams and sides and it has a religious like fervor. So I don't love that. I think that's, is what it, you know, it's like, let's just call it what it is. Like, it's just, there's woke and there's anti-woke and 
we'll let them do their thing and let, but the rest of us, what should we be doing? So we're starting to narrate the idea of sustainability. Let's talk about sustainability as this umbrella, and then let's discern real sustainability. So what's material to your business strategy? What's going to be durable to political backlashes? And what is ultimately, what can you do that's discerning so that you can narrate what you're doing and also what you're not doing. And so that's where we're landing with our clients. And that is resonating perfectly. So we don't see our, our companies aren't like, yay, yes, she's over. Our companies are like, oh my God, another like melodramatic headwind. Like now what? That, that And that's not good for your business. Instead, it's a, we just want to be able to find this real sustainability path that's durable, material, discerning, and that companies can narrate what they're doing, what they're not doing, and why. And so I think there's a lot of like, I think you could find this whole thing quite constructive, like this whole like ESG, anti-ESG. You can find it constructive, but if but no, you know, no executive wants to be on this drama pendulum. <laughs> yeah. So we really want to help them find something where they can just stay, you know, maybe like above the fray. Like the fray is happening down there, and where they're like, we're just going in this in this direction but they have to be able to answer the anti-esg questions because their employees are like wait why are we doing this stuff you know our our maybe our politicians our state doesn't like it and so companies have to be able to narrate their way through that so one thing um with regards to that narrative that i know uh most companies speak is you know roi um what sort of you know, ROI are your are your clients finding when it comes to their ESG strategies? I mean, is that changing? Is that changing their strategy as far as the way they're going about their daily business? Or are you just seeing, you know, sort of like you talked about a little, little too much talk or gaslighting or whatever you want to call it? But yeah, so there's the companies that are doing sustainability well it is materially tied to the success of their business in the short, medium, and long-term. Now, what are some examples, like this is, and it's very different, right? Like a midstream gas company has one, one set of things that are, look successful. And like an EMP has a totally different one, but, but a few areas that we see um, like meaningful um, return want that not in not in dollars because they do see dollars in like say product if you're not emitting or you know reduced fines like those kind of things but let me speak a little more abstractly in terms of risk management big one huge one employee engagement employees millennial and gen z employees have to defend their choice to work in the oil and gas industry often even if they're in texas or north dakota they Mm -hmm. still have peers from um Uh, their peer group or their family who are like, aren't you working in the industry of the past? So being able to articulate how their company is on the forward foot is creating the energy future is really, really important. The second is pressure around financing. So uh, shareholders, lenders, Mm -hmm. insurers, they want to know that if they come from a world where that's climate constrained, you know, climate first, they need to know you have a plan that you, that this business is going to make it through anti-fossil fuels, climate first, whatever the next COP brings, the whatever the next presidential election brings. And so making sure you have a, a, a narrative that articulates the role of your business and your business strategy in a climate-constrained world is actually mission critical. It can mean you don't get funding, you don't get um, support for your board seats, 
Uh, and we saw a lot more drama about that a couple of years ago, like when Exxon's um, had Exxon's board had a lot of turnover, um, and that that's sort of tamped down now. But those those things are really useful to companies to be able to narrate um, the things they're doing that mitigate their risks and maximize their opportunities in the future. The ROI discussion is is really an interesting one. It's a hard one because so for my company, we're you know we're a relatively large private equity backed company. We don't we're not public uh, publicly traded, but um, you know, our, our investors are very interested in, Hey, what do you, you know, they're always asking, what are you guys doing? And, and they have a whole support wing now to basically give their, their portfolio companies support in this area. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's hard because a lot of it, you can't put dollar signs on. Right. Um, one thing we did was, uh, GPS trackers on our fleet and I mean, we've cut our idle time emissions in half. And so there is an environmental benefit, but there's also a monetary benefit to us because we consume less fuel. I mean, you'd be shocked to just some of our field guys, just how long they'll let their trucks idle. It's actually, it was kind of disturbing, um, <laughs> but <laughs> right. Like, um, it, but the employee engagement engagement piece is, I think a wildly underestimated part totally that like, not like very, like the companies that get it, get it. Right. And, and it's, you can't put a dollar sign on it necessarily, but I mean, what are some creative things that you're seeing your companies, your customers do in the employee engagement realm? If you can tie in some, if you can't share any, that's fine. But, you know, what are, what are some cool things that people could take away and be like, man, I'm going to try to take that back to my company and do that. Cause you know, just from, from, you know, the cost to hire, and retention yeah. right now is so difficult. The workforce is the most difficult labor market I've ever experienced. Trying to find people from the Bakken all the way to South Texas is just so hard. And so whatever little thing you can do to be better to your companies, uh, let's share those ideas and do it. Yeah, yeah. So um, employee engagement things that have gone really well. Um, there, there's one sort of category thing, which is about keeping your millennial and Gen Z leaders and potential leaders engaged. So having, um, uh, some equivalent, that's like a junior board or advisory committee to the board. So having a cross-functional, um, having cross-functional groups of, uh, younger employees that can, um, get questions given to them by the board, and then they can come back and present their ideas. So they get visibility to leadership, they problem solve. That's, uh, we've seen some great success with that. A second area is innovation teams. And all of these have to be like, have to be, have explicit support from managers, right? Otherwise you're just doing more stuff in your free time, which, you know, none of us want to do. But if an, an innovation team is empowered, they're given a few questions, maybe by the executive team, what's five ways we could save emissions or track emissions or whatever. Um, and then have that group spend some amount of time. You can do shark tanks. You can do different kinds of contests. You could provide pr uh, presentations. Um, but having cross-functional teams that then get some leadership exposure in that same theme has been really uh, um, effective. And then um, the last thing that we're seeing is um, oil and gas companies are really good about rotating employees. And But often the innovation teams are like the new low-carbon ventures are a lot of outsiders. So as soon as that 
that gets set up, you have kind of an us and a them, like the, the legacy and the new. So you want to mix that up maximally. So those are all things that keep employees pretty excited that this is a company innovating. This is a company with a lot of leadership, um, energy. And, and th so those are a few ideas of how, how companies are doing, are doing that today. Tisha, we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Let's Clear the Air, a public education campaign of GPA Midstream Association and GPSA Midstream Suppliers. The midstream industry helps power the lives of 330 million Americans by working around the clock to provide reliable energy, counteract climate change, and strengthen our country's economy. Let's Clear the Air is about promoting a constructive dialogue on the future of energy. Learn more and join the conversation at letscleartheairnow.org. Now, back to Andrew and Adam. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you into writing the books and what's behind each of those? My first book, Accidentally Adamant, was about um, why I went from being an environmental activist who was opposed to the oil and gas industry to supporting the oil and gas industry. And I just mentioned that because... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of times employees that feel ambivalent about the industry enjoy that book because it like narrates my it narrates my science journey of why I became um, so passionate that the oil and gas industry can solve the world's biggest problems. The um, Game Changers Playbook was my next one, and I wrote it during COVID because it felt like the world ending. You know, it just like there was just so many disruptors uh, everywhere, and I wanted to. I write books to make sense of things that aren't making sense to me. And in that case, what wasn't making sense to me is it felt like we were just disrupted constantly. We we're just reacting to everything. And what would it mean to go from being the disrupted to the disruptor? And that, and through writing that book, that's really uh, what changed my thinking from like, it's not enough for us to say, oh, we're going to do better on climate. We actually have to become the civic leaders around the world addressing climate. The number one part of the solution. That's how you, that's how you disrupt things. So that that's really what that book was about. And then um real decarbonization, I wrote because um we were advising companies to make aspirational decarbonization commitments, but we knew there was going to be a tiny window where that would be acceptable. And then there would there would inevitably be critiques like companies are 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 promising things they have no intention of doing. Yeah. So the difference between aspiration and actually like an authentic aspirational commitment, what makes one BS and the other one credible <laughs> is um, the quality of your planning. And so real decarbonization is actually almost like a workbook. Like what do you need to do as a company so that your net zero commitment will have credibility in the eyes of the public. And so that, that was, and that was us. We were working through that in real time with our clients and just thought we should get it, get it out there. I, <clears throat> that's really interesting. I've, I've been speaking around the nation. Uh, I don't know, for the past year or so as well. And um, sharing the message that the sec, once your CEOs start speaking about these goals and influencing essentially their stock price, right? The SEC is going to get involved and make sure that you are meeting those promises. And so that's been a very interesting conversation to have with people from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. It's uh, so I guess from that point on, is there anything in any of those books? I always, this is a, 
an interesting question, I think. Uh, is there anything in any of those books that you would change now that we're a few years down the road? Yes, everything. Um, it's, <laughs> it's like torture. Rev as, 2 sounds like an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's torture. As soon as you write something and I go to publish it, you're always like, oh, I want, but I want to add. So my, my gen general philosophy in life if you're committed to science and you're committed to growing because you're going to take in new information, you're going to change your mind, you're going to have to evolve your thinking. And, and a perfect example was Game Changers Playbook was make aspirational commitments. Real decarbonization was like, oh, you better like get some, you better do the math and like get some details down. Like, like you better get serious real, real fast. And there was like less than two years between those books because that's how fast the world's moving. So I think, um, I think in the work we do, we're going to have to be evolving continuously. Mm -hmm. I don't think we, I don't think anyone's getting this right. And that is an opportunity for all of us to contribute and to contribute, like do, do the hive mind of getting, like we all add on each other and we make things better. So even when I do, like you guys are a wonderful, friendly podcast. When I do a hostile podcast, my only goal is that I get better. I get better at what I do. I get better at influencing um, and so that's the way, even my books, when I put them out there, I'm like, I probably got five things wrong or 20 and people are going to tell me, and then our work will be better. I, we could, we want to be a hostile podcast. We just can't find people to be hostile with, right, Adam? <laughs> we try. <laughs> It'd be more fun. I, I have two things and, and producer Russ, I think, uh, we're going to go long cause this is too good to not, I'm not cutting this short. Two follow-ups to things you said to Adam. Net 50 like net zero by 2050. The people in the boardroom that are making those are not going to be the ones who have their feet held to the fire in 25 right. years, right? To me, right. the more meaningful commitments are like the, okay, we're going to do something by 2030 or 2035, yeah. maybe 2040. But like you hear the net 20, you know, net zero by 2050. And I just go like, here's I just, why I think Okay, let's get hostile, guys. Let's like yes, yes. <laughs> let's get mean. So, all right, we can do this. Um, so here's why I actually think net fifty commitments are or net whatever, but net zero commitments in a time frame that are aspirational and not backed by science are important. And here's why: because uh, probably a majority of people think that it is important and necessary. And so I think to meet them where we're going, like to meet them in some way that we can talk about where we're going in a credible way. If we're across the table and they're going net 50, you know, net zero by 2050. And you're like, it's not physically possible. You have all the facts on your side, but you're not actually advancing the conversation. So what I like to do is think of, of, net, of net zero by whenever as like, we're turning our heads in the same direction. We're looking and saying, okay, if we both want to go there, what can we agree on? What can we agree are the steps today? What can we agree on as the trade-offs that are, are reasonable? And how much, like, how much are we willing to put into this? And so a shared aspiration is a way to change a conflict into a directional conversation. So really like almost physically turning your body. And then you have the opportunity for more, I think, pragmatic conversations. And I've seen this play out with policymakers. If you kind of take the, the debate off the table and instead say, we too share your aspiration, but now let's figure out what we can actually do today. And let's also talk about the reality of like oil demand, for example, you know, like you create a space for those conversations. This is about <laughs> creating connection and creating trust and finding new ways to, to make progress. So-
that's that's a good no that's a, that's a good that's a good answer I, I the second question i was going to ask then just to follow up on what you said to adam climate science so that's my background my phd is in earth systems i have a phd in oceanography i studied paleoclimate basically the last glacial cycle um that's the world i live in and somehow ended up in oil and gas um it, yeah talk about culture shock i did my undergrad at c boulder and then i went to college station texas for my phd um that was a brutal transition to say the least but like how do like how do your customers like because you, you just said something on the lines to adam of like we have to be the ones out there talking about climate and and showing proficiency in those conversations but like god like you know to the point of like in the opening there's you know two truths can be true right like mm-hmm. people just do not know what to do with climate data and it it drives me someone who's competent in it and has done the science and and can speak fluently in climate language like it drive like our willingness to truly understand and embrace the science is I think totally broken in the industry. Do you agree? Yeah, so Andrew, first of all, I think we all could learn from your mental flexibility, which some people think of as a weakness, but I think is an overarching strength to go from Boulder, you know, to Texas and <laughs> yeah, climate science to the oil and gas industry. Like that is how we're going to solve all the world's greatest problems is by everyone expanding their mental flexibility and their and the emotional identity flexibility that goes with that. So um, kudos, kudos to you. Now around climate science, so the, the, and I, you know, of course, if I'm working with a company, I work quite gently in this space because why don't, why doesn't the oil and gas industry like climate science? Well, because they're the villain. They're like the evil empire that ruined the planet and now everyone's going to die and a whole generation has climate anxiety. Like nobody wants to start talking down a road where like they are the ultimate villain before the conversation even started. So that is a huge flaw and a huge critique I have of the climate movement. Like if you're committed to having a villain, you're not committed to having a partner and you got to choose at some point. And I say that in a lot of contexts in as many hopefully influential ways as I can. Now, if you're the industry and you, for example, are passionate and we don't have to argue this as much as we used to, but about fracking science, like let's talk about how safe fracking is. You get to do that if you're also willing to talk about climate science. And there's some pretty compelling evidence about human caused CO2. Uh, levels rising out in the world. And so like, you don't get to pick your science if you're going to be sciencey people. So I have found that to be pretty compelling way to do it. Now, here's the thing at this point, nobody really needs to know much climate science. We need to become human scientists. We need to be, be um, students of human behavior and how to engage more effectively in the world. Because as Adam said earlier, we're now like in a religious holy war around climate and energy. That's not the same as, as a science debate. <laughs> and so if you're in a religious holy war and you don't want to be, you have to use totally different engagement strategies. And that's the world we find ourselves in today. So I try to stay up on climate science just to be smart, um, but I don't actually find that I use it very often. I do try to also use, I try to stay up on climate science to understand if my urgency is off. Like I have more urgency about raising people out of poverty in developing economies than I do around 
CO2 levels personally. And, and I might be off. So I try to pay attention to like, see if I I'm getting that wrong. Also. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a complicated science. I think that, you know, I probably bothers me more because I do understand it, you know, but even simple stuff, like I made a post on LinkedIn not too long ago, and it, it was just funny to see the responses, you know, you, you see the anti-climate change people say, well, what do we care about emissions in the U.S.? The Chinese emissions are six times us. Well, I could make the same argument and say that per capita, the emissions of, you know, an American is three times that of a Chinese person, right? Like it, yeah, there's, there's just, there's so many ways to look at it. It's such a complex uh, topic that, um, yeah, I don't know, probably, probably bothers me uh, more than, than the average person, but I can uh, get off my high horse. One thing I wanted to ask you as we start to kind of wrap up the, the conversation is like, you've, you've gotten to interview some like wildly cool people on your podcast. And, uh, and, and I'm just curious, like who sticks out as someone that we should all be following and, and kind of looking to for great thoughts on the, you know, the, the energy and climate and, and just overall conversation that we've been having today. Yeah. I love that question. And I love how blessed I am to get to talk to all these cool people. Um, I want to give you three, so I'll, I'll do them quickly. So, um, Matt Colazar is chief environmental scientist at Exxon. And um, for anyone out in the world who like wants to hate Exxon, there's like the devil, there's the Koch brothers and there's Exxon, which is a lot of people. I always send them to that podcast because he's just so authentic um, and not super, he doesn't have a, like a big agenda or you know a bunch of talking points. He just talks about what he cares about and what he cares about is addressing climate and it's just really awesome and he's like a you know I don't know 27 year Exxon employee you know it's just not what people expect so love him um Chad Zamorin with Williams um I find myself quoting him constantly so I didn't notice at the time but he's the one that said the oil and gas industry loves to solve the world's greatest problems and that actually just changed my thinking and he's just got like he just like drops one-liners like that that's just how he actually thinks so he's super interesting he's worth listening to and then it's not out yet but first uh, episode of my new season will be Roger Pilkey Jr. And um, what I wanted to talk to Roger about, so he is a climate scientist, mm -hmm. um, but he gets a lot of grief because he doesn't follow the environmental orthodoxy. And I wanted to talk to him about like, not, not like the climate science and all the stuff he's super famous for, but I wanted to talk to him about like, when do you fight and when do you not fight? Like, when do you engage and just say, I'm going to like die on this hell? And when do you not die on this hell? And that's actually, um, because that's what we're, we all also have to decide. So that was, that was a real, that's a really fun one that's about to come out. Yeah, that will definitely be a good one. I'm looking forward to that. So that's the Energy Things podcast, correct? That what is, season are you. you on, by the way? I haven't looked. Yeah, we're starting season six. Wow, that's great. I think we're on episode six. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little more than that. But I think this is 10. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so you got the Energy Things podcast. Everyone go look for that. Um, find it wherever your podcasts are consumed. Um, what else are you working on? Uh, or what else do you have coming up that you think might be of interest to our listeners? I think the only other thing that I would invite everyone to think about is, and it's not what we're doing, it's what the world's doing, which is the U.S. is about to go into a like a very, very long presidential election cycle. And I think it's tempting for all of us to get caught up 
in the polarization, including like right now, there's a lot of even anti, like anti-addressing climate, anti-decarbonization, you know, we already know about the other stuff, but let's just not fall for that. Like, let's be civic leaders that solve the world's greatest problems. Let's not fall into like woke, anti-woke, ESG, anti-ESG. Let's all decide to be discerning consumers of information and contribute to positive change. And that's like what I spend my days trying to figure out is how to influence that, how to be a force for good, how to be a part for just a piece of incremental forward progress, how to how to build one new new bridge to someone who otherwise wouldn't want to talk to someone from the oil and gas industry. If we each do that um, over this next like crazy time period, I think we can we can meaningfully be a part of leading into the future. Good change. Good change. You also do Tisha's Insights, your newsletter. Both of these things are true. How do, how do people sign up for your newsletter and hear all of your wonderful thoughts weekly? Oh, thank you. I would love to have anyone go to our website, energythinks.com. Um, and you can just sign up right there or you can um, connect to me on LinkedIn and I that we repost that way. So two venues um, to, to connect to people. Perfect. And let me know what you think. I, I love to get stronger and better by having people push back on stuff I'm doing. Absolutely. We can definitely do that. I like to harass people on LinkedIn all the time. So, <laughs> all right. So we usually wrap up with one final question. It's the same for everybody. Um, and, and we're always, we always get the best answers here. So we'll see. It's three years from now. You're, you, we're through that crazy election cycle you talked about. We're, we're, we're back on this show and Tisha is happy. What has happened in the energy world or in the world in general that makes you feel happy? Uh, the, the first is that um, oil and gas companies now, you know, better known as energy companies are leading in action on both providing the energy that's the lifeblood of our lives and decarbonizing. And we're doing it even though nobody wanted us to. And that makes me happy. And then what would be like bonus, bonus, bonus happy. And I run pretty happy. So that's like really, really happy um, <laughs> would be if um, climate activists, like there's some sweet, it will never be all, but some sweet were like, yeah, we want your, we want your partnership. We want you to participate because we care more about solving this than we care about making you guys the bad guys. That I don't ex- I actually don't expect that to happen and we don't need it to happen. Um, but if it did, whew, that'd feel pretty good. Wouldn't it? Okay, so I'm gonna ask you one more question just because they just triggered <laughs> my mind, sorry. Uh, no, well, the COP, the climate meetings, the COP28 meetings are in Dubai this year, which is kind of an interesting setting, right? That a lot of the environmentalists are pissed that an OPEC nation is hosting the climate talks, but the UAE also is one of the largest investors in renewable energies in the world. So just off the cuff, do you think there will be any momentum built in Dubai in December for uh, more partnership between industry and the environmental side? Maybe in the sense that anytime individual humans get to know each other in person, working toward a shared goal, they usually figure out that their caricatures of each other are wrong. And so I am pro-human. I am pro-connection. I am pro-getting rid of caricatures. And any progress we can make in that direction, I like breaking down these ideas. Like it's not that useful to have COP 
in, you know, some place that doesn't have oil, I think it's like way more relevant to have it, um, have it there. So I like that. I like the tension of reality, meaning aspiration and humans having to figure out how to overcome their biases. Like that's how we're going to make progress. Yeah. I think it's going to be a great meeting. I think it'll be productive. I think the UAE and their leadership is everything I've seen so far is doing a fantastic job. Um, and yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens. So, well, look, Tisha, we've taken ton of your time, and I don't know about Adam, but I'm ready to run through a brick wall, <laughs> talking to folks like yourself who are just so passionate about what they do and passionate about having conversations about all the positive things the industry here stateside is doing and is going to continue to do, regardless of whatever crap gets thrown our way is refreshing. And uh, just thank you for your, your leadership in the space and, and taking the time out of your day to talk to us. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Adam and Andrea, what a joy. Thanks for doing what you do. This is how we're going to make a difference. And that'll do it for this episode of Let's Clear the Air. Andrew, what an incredible interview. What, a, what are your initial thoughts here? I mean, I knew this was going to be like the Scott Tinker interview, just full of great little takeaway nuggets. And, and what she said in the beginning, uh, two opposing viewpoints can be true. Um, it, it's just, it. I think that one statement epitomizes why it is so hard to have pragmatic conversations about energy and the environment and climate, because you can have like multiple realities can exist on the topic and it makes it really hard to navigate those positions in a constructive manner. And so, um, you know, Tisha and her team are out there doing just tremendous work, trying to, to forge those conversations with, with their customers. And, um, yeah, she's, she's awesome. It was, it was such a fun interview. How about you, Adam? Well, I thought she paid a a great compliment to you, but also gave me an idea to start thinking about things. And I might even put together a LinkedIn post on this myself, but just mental flexibility, um, the ability to, to break down complex problems and have complex discussions and put yourself in positions where you're a little bit uncomfortable, but safe. You know, unfortunately, she's had to deal with some unsafe situations, but um you know, mental flexibility is something that I think I'm going to be thinking about for a while. It's just that is a that is a skill, not a weakness, as we talked about. So, and it's hard to learn, right? I mean, there has to be a willingness, I think, to to be mentally flexible and open to other viewpoints. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a talent. It's a a skill that you have to hone, I'm sure. So, I'm going to dig into that more, but. Well, with that, we'd like to hear uh, from our audience on guest suggestions, questions, comments, and the like. Uh, you can connect with Andrew and I on LinkedIn. Uh, visit us at letscleartheairnow.org. And if you like what you heard, please rate us as your favorite podcast on whichever app that you are listening to. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Clear the Air. Thank you for listening to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast with Adam Murray and Dr. Andrew Parker. If you like what you have heard, subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. You can email us with questions or comments to Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.